This is Jewish Board Talk with Sharice Zephard, only on 101.9 High FM. Samuel Sokol is a journalist and author. He has appeared many times on my show speaking about diaspora jury affairs. He joins me now to tell me about his recently published book, Putin's Hybrid War and the Jews. It is based on his reporting from the Ukraine during the first years of the Donbass War and chronicles the collapse of Jewish life in the eastern Ukraine occupied by Russia in 2014. Samuel, welcome and thank you so much for joining me. Thank you for having me. And it's lovely to have you back on the show. Yes, it's been a while. <laughs> Samuel, yeah. in the, since we last spoke, you've written a book. Yes, yes, I have. Um, you obviously, I mean, I, I remember when we last spoke, there were the two areas that you're particularly interested in was the Ukraine, where you visited often, and you, obviously your books come out of that, and of course France, because your wife is French, and uh, all the events happening in, among French juries affected you personally. That's correct. But so the yes. the new book, uh, as you said, is drawn from my reporting on. Uh, Ukraine, and it seems like uh, Ukraine has been the topic that everybody's discussing the last few days. It's uh, become a bit of a hot topic, which I would not have imagined when I started working on that country. Right. Um, Samuel, it's a hot topic at the moment because? Well, uh, to sort of simplify and condense, it's uh, emerged that it appears that uh, American President Trump has uh, pressured the Ukrainians to uh, to investigate uh, former pres- Vice President Joe Biden and his son Hunter, who sat on the board of Ukrainian uh, company several years ago. And what it appears to be, or at least what the allegation is, based on the transcripts of Trump's phone call with uh, the Ukrainian President Zelensky, is that, the, uh, is that Trump basically was sort of implying, if you want continued aid to your country, you have to... Uh, you know, investigate my political rival. Biden is the presumptive uh, Democratic nominee for 2020. He's expected to be the one going up against Trump. And what happened was several days before Trump called Zelensky and repeatedly asked him as a foreign leader to investigate a domestic political rival, several days before that, he made a decision to withhold nearly $400 million of, uh, of military aid to Ukraine, which Ukraine needs because it's fighting a Russian-backed insurgency that's been festering in the east of the country for several years. So it's nothing was stated outright, but it's essentially appears to be a shakedown, a quid pro quo. You know, you do what I want, you help me out with my political issue, and I will, you know, give you what you need. Hmm. So this has caused... Uh, you know, quite a bit of hand-wringing in the states, and the Democrats are talking about impeachment at this point. Wow. Um, Sam, back to your book and Putin's hybrid war and the Jews. Ukrainian Jews have never had it easy. No, Ukrainian Jews never have had it easy. Uh, After the 1905 revolution, there were pogroms that swept across the country, killing thousands. After the 1917 revolution during the Russian Civil War, uh, you know, there was just a massive wave of pogroms killing tens of thousands, uh, hundreds of thousands, uh, across Ukraine and Russia. During the war, Ukrainian Jewry was decimated. After the war, what was left was suppressed by the communists. And following uh, the end of the Cold War, you know, everybody who could get out almost left. So what you had left at the, uh, you know, at the beginning of the 90s, 
terms of Ukrainian Jewry was this uh, sort of dis, uh, disorganized remnant. You didn't really have shoals. You didn't have uh, Jewish community centers. You didn't have cultural or religious groups. You didn't have uh, Hebrew schools. It was just sort of a wasteland. And over the course of the past several decades, you had this community sort of pull itself up out of the ashes, reconstitute itself, rebuild itself, uh, create uh, self-sustaining and vibrant communities. In many cases, the communities were much smaller than the total number of Jews who are actually living in any given city, but it, it existed. It was there. And when the Russians decided to start making trouble in Ukraine in 2014, uh, a lot of that Jewish life, at least in the east of the country, came to an end. Uh, what happened was in early 2014, after several months of massive street protests, taking out hundreds of thousands of people in the center of Kiev, uh, the Ukrainians deposed uh, Viktor Yanukovych. It was their deeply corrupt pro-Russian president. And they... There was this decision to, uh, made to sort of go in a European direction to pivot away from the post-Soviet corrupt Putin uh, Russia and move towards the European Union. And the Russians didn't like this. And part of their sort of attempt of bringing the Ukrainians back into the fold was twofold. First, they annexed the uh, Crimean Peninsula in the Ukrainian south to retain control of military bases they had there. And then they fomented revolution in the east of the country to... Uh, you know, to try to destabilize Ukraine, sort of. It, that was also sort of a shakedown, saying, you know, come back into the fold and things will be okay, but otherwise, you know, we're going to, nice country you have here, we might wreck it. And, you know, it's very sort of gangster, uh, sort of thing you might see in like a movie like Goodfellas. That's sort of how, how the Russians operate, uh, unfortunately, under, under Putin. And one of the excuses the Russians used to justify their actions was to say, that Russian speakers, Jews, and other minorities were in danger because of a revival of fascism and Nazism in Ukraine. So part of the excuse that the Russians had was, we're here to defend the Jews. Mm. And you saw several years of propaganda, counter-propaganda, with each side basically say, calling the other side anti-Semitic, mm. saying that they're there to defend the Jews. Uh, you, got, you had... You know, everyone loves to talk about fake news, and for the most part in the West, it is totally not true. Uh, that's something that strong men and, and wannabe autocrats say. But in Russia, it is true. Uh, the Russians control their media. The Russian government controls their media. And you had lots of fake news about uh, fabricated pogroms and made-up closures of Jewish schools. And Russian media was reporting that Jews were fleeing Ukraine in droves because of fear of anti-Semitism. Jews were fleeing Ukraine in droves, but so were regular Ukrainians, and they were fleeing because of the war. They were fleeing because of the economic collapse. Uh, I interviewed dozens of Jewish refugees, both uh, internally in Ukraine and in Israel and the States, and I have never heard one Jew who fled the country saying it was because of anti-Semitism. Not one. They, only two things they ever said were, We've been displaced by the war, or the war has destroyed our livelihood. We had to get out. I mean, there are two million non-Jewish Ukrainians living in Poland right now since the war started. But, uh, you know, you had this whole back and forth, which each side presented itself as the defenders of the Jews. In the meantime, the Jewish communities in the east of the country fell apart, uh, the same as the non-Jewish communities. But with the Jewish communities, there's this added poignancy because they had finally managed to recreate Jewish life after the better part of a century of being, you know, totally... Uh, 
you know, uh, downtrodden and prevented from having any sort of communal life. And when they finally get to that point where everything's going well again, you know, the Russians come in, the war starts, the next thing you know, uh, everything just falls apart again. They're decimated. So that was what I covered in the book. The sort of the, the, the two stories, the story of the geopolitics of the, uh, of the propaganda, the fake news, the hybrid war, but also the, sort of this human story about the people who had to leave their homes, what they did, how the Jewish communities tried to, you know, support their people, tried to stay together, even in in internal exile. And how most of the organized Jewish world uh, in the States, in Israel, for the most part, except for a few organizations that really did get involved, most people had no clue what was going on and didn't get involved to, to help the displaced at all. Wow. Um, Sam, what is the current situation in the Ukraine now? Current situation is as follows. The uh, the war is still going on. Uh, every once in a while, every few days or weeks, you'll hear about a few other soldiers being killed. It's basically come down to trench warfare, similar to the First World War. You have two trench lines. You get, uh, you get raids. You get artillery bombardments. Uh, the people living there are going through intense hardship. Most of the Jews living in, in those regions have resettled either in Ukraine, elsewhere in Ukraine or in Israel. Uh, and several months ago, you had the election of the first Jewish president of Ukraine. Now, there were poll, public opinion polls done a year ago saying, which showed that the majority of Ukrainians wouldn't vote for a Jew. And when it actually came down to pick their ballots, they just overwhelmingly more than 73% of Ukrainians voted for uh, Volodymyr Zelensky, a Jewish comedian. Uh, this is essentially uh, the equivalent of Americans deciding to vote for uh, Jerry Seinfeld as president. Uh, what do we know about Vladimir and, and also um, his Judaism? To what extent is it a, a strong identity for him? Well, not particularly. Uh, meaning the best way to describe it is he's a Politician who's Jewish, not a Jewish politician. Someone asked him about this in an interview a few months ago, and he basically said, being Jewish is something like 26 on my list of attributes. Mm. But at the same time, I think that uh, many people, many Jews have sort of pinned their hopes on him. Because one of the things that has happened since the Russians uh, invaded in 2014 is that the Ukrainians sort of wanted to split themselves off culturally and historically from Russia. And part of that was to raise up this new pantheon of national heroes who had fought against Russia in previous conflicts and to turn them into the new legends of contemporary Ukraine. And many of these figures that they've sort of deified in the last three or four years have been Nazi collaborators, mm. people who, yes, they fought against the communists, they fought against Russia, they were committed anti-communists, but they were also fascists, they were also anti-Semites, they were also engaged in ethnic cleansing against Jews and Poles. Uh, one of the uh, biggest uh, national heroes in Ukraine now is this guy, uh, Stepan Bandera, whose men during the war killed about several thousand Jews. The numbers are a bit hard to come by. Mm -hmm. uh, depends on which historian you ask. But thousands of Jews. And depending on the estimate, between 70 and 100,000 ethnic Poles. So uh, deeply problematic figures. And one of the things that Zelensky has done so far, and this actually happened over the past week is that he uh, fired the controversial head of the country's Institute of National Memory, which was the government body that was responsible for creating these new narratives. And there's a feeling among some observers 
that while he's not going to repudiate what's been done publicly, he's not going to make a clean break, he's going to downpedal uh, and soften what's what's coming out of the government. And it's not even necessarily because he's a Jew, but it's because he represents a majority of Ukrainians who just don't really approve of that. That's really a sort of a right-wing nationalist message, and he represents sort of a more moderate, centrist approach. So, you know, from the point of view of the Jewish community, what he's doing is, you know, is very promising. Hmm. What is a little bit uh, interesting about him now, though, is that he, you know, he had that phone call with Trump, and he appeared incredibly obsequious. It, uh, he was telling Trump, you're right, not 100%, but 1,000%. So I think that could hurt his image a bit in the West. But speaking of friends in Kiev, it doesn't appear to have done much to to harm him politically back home, interestingly enough. The geopolitics at the moment are fascinating. It's uh, one giant mess over there, <laughs> and uh, somehow it feels like everyone around the world is getting dragged in. Um, Samuel, for people who would like to read your book, what is the best way of getting to it? Uh, I would suggest the best way is, uh, is on Amazon. It's available as a paperback and as an ebook. And with an ebook, you can order it and it shows up immediately on your Kindle app on your phone or your tablet or on your, uh, Kindle e-reader. What is the response to your book being? Uh, the sort of hate to toot my own horn, <laughs> but the, uh, Moscow Times of all papers, it's, the Moscow Times is an expat newspaper in, Russia run by English speakers, which is one of the only news outlets that are not really directly controlled by the Kremlin. Uh, the Moscow Times ca- called it impossible to put down. Wow. Which I found, you know, very, very flattering. Wow, that's unbelievable. And a lot of, um, as I said earlier, you, you were in the trenches literally. I mean, I've seen photos of you, uh, like literally being whisked away with refugees. So you, you well, really experienced it. Uh, I mean, not directly in the front. I've been right behind the front, and I spend a lot of time near the front speaking with refugees. Uh, luckily, I had one guy aim a gun at me once, but luckily I've never actually been under fire. Uh, because I wasn't really focusing so much on the war as on the people displaced by it. So I've been on both sides of the front line talking to people infected, but uh, I'm not particularly a combat reporter mm. as such. I'm less interested in the adrenaline high of, you know, running out there under the bullets than, you know, actually finding out what what the human cost of the war is. Well, Samuel, I'd like to say thank you so much for joining me. Um, your book looks absolutely fascinating. I'm sure many uh, listeners would like to get hold of it. And we will hopefully be in touch soon. Thank you so much. It's always a pleasure. Wish you Shabbat Shalom and Shana Tova. Shabbat Shalom, Shana Tova.